Well, good morning. Good to see you on this uh, Sunday morning, this opportunity for us to gather together to worship the Lord. Um, you know, the Lord desires um, for people to come and worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's what we hope to accomplish, not only on uh, Sunday mornings corporately, but individually throughout the week. So um, don't, don't wait till Sunday to worship. So, but we're glad you're here. We're continuing our series in the book of John, in the gospel of John, and I'm excited uh, about being in chapter five this morning. Uh, it's been good so far. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Uh, really enjoyed it. Very challenging, reinforcing a lot of truths that I'm sure many of us have known for a long time. Um, but also, I think introducing some things that maybe we haven't seen, and maybe this morning that will be the case as well. Uh, as you guys know, um, I'm planning on taking a trip out west uh, later this spring, and so I've been kind of planning along the way, and I'm seeing all of these things kind of pop up and neat places to visit, and uh, although I don't have plans to do this, one of the things that, I, I, that caught my eye was a hot mineral spring. How many of you guys have ever been to a hot mineral spring? Okay. Um, I uh, did a little bit of research, and so according to the internet, Simply soaking in a mineral hot spring has a naturally detoxifying and a gentle remedy for skin ailments, including acne, eczema, and psoriasis. A warm mineral springs park in Florida is rumored to have one of the highest mineral contents of any natural spring in the United States. With anaerobic and highly mineralized properties internationally known for its purported healing qualities, the park attracts more than 130 visitors annually who journey to soak in its waters. So, and that's from their website. So um, as I was thinking about it, the closest thing I ever came to uh, being in a hot mineral spring was probably about three years ago when my wife and I um, went to Yellowstone National Park and we sat in the boiling river. Uh, now, notice I said the boiling river, not, not a boiling river. Um, that would not have been good. Uh, but we sat in the boiling river, and it was wonderful. It was hot. It was relaxing. Um, but it didn't heal my plantar fasciitis. I was very disappointed. Um, you know, people for centuries... Um, have traveled to exotic places, um, you know, for, to so-called healing waters, to be healed of whatever ailment that might be afflicting them. And I'm sure that a lot of these places are beautiful and wonderful and relaxing and everything else. And maybe it does help with uh, eczema. Um, but I don't know anyone who's come back 20 years younger or healed of cancer, you know, and um, I, I think that's one of the things that perplexes me a little bit about modern Christians is that we, we, we so easily, we're so gullible sometimes. We're so easily led astray into these new miracle cures and everything else. But that's a message for another day. Um, you know, I think that um, when we think about what, what people do today in traveling to different places and trying different cures and, you know, things like that, things really haven't changed in 2,000 years. 
Uh, in fact, in Jesus' day, there was a pool that many believed uh, had healing properties, and people flocked there in the hopes of having their, their ailments uh, taken away. Whatever sickness or disease that they might have had, whatever, whatever uh, infirmity that they had, that they would be healed. And in John chapter 5, we, we read about a healing that actually took place at a pool in Jerusalem. Only he had nothing to do with the water. It was done also on the Sabbath, and it was done by Jesus. So in this particular story, what we see is that Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness and his authority over the Sabbath day by healing this man at the pool of Bethesda. And in so doing, He reminds us, and John reminds us, that Jesus is God, and he is Lord over all. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the healing that we have in Christ. That, Father, we need look no further than to look to your Son, And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide. Uh, Lord, encourage our hearts, convict us where we need to be convicted, but most of all, Lord, change us and conform us into the image of your Son, and it's in his name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 5. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Starting in verse 1. Now after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, when you look at the very first two words here in in verse 1, the phrase, after this, that indicates that this was sometime after Jesus' stay in Galilee. Uh, Jesus uh, had returned to Jerusalem after uh, encountering the woman at the well in Samaria and then the healing of the official's son uh, there in Cana. And so now he's back in Jerusalem. And we're not told which feast Jesus attended, only that there was a feast going on and Jesus was there during this feast. Now, where it says by the sheep gate, there was a pool called Bethesda, which interestingly enough means house of mercy. Now, in the original Greek, there are various spellings for Bethesda. So, depending on what Bible you have, in which Greek translation is being used, you might see the name Bethzetha, or Bethsaida, or Bethesda. Try saying that three times real fast. Well, why were these invalids there? Now, some of you may have noticed, if you're looking on screen, um, 
that the text that you have behind me is missing part of verse 3 and verse 4. It was really funny this morning because as we were in the back, Trevor and I and Noah were in the back there and we're showing and Noah's looking at the verse and he goes, hey, uh, you guys forgot something. Um, the, the verse 4, it's, it's not there. I said, well, it's not just verse 4 that's missing. Part of verse 3 is missing too. So he was about ready, ready to type it in. He was going, well, let me find it and I'll, I'll put it in. Um, there is no verse 4. There is no verse 3b. Now, some of you may have a Bible that has a study note in there that kind of alerts you to what the issue is here. So trust me, I did not omit the verse, okay? I'm not tampering with God's word here. Uh, but this is how the ESV reads, as does the NIV and the CSV. And as I mentioned, some translations um, include that last part of verse 3 and verse 4, but they put it in brackets usually. And then there's a footnote that basically explains why it's not included. Um, and, and usually it's, it says something to this effect that um, most early manuscripts don't contain this verse. See, most Bible scholars don't believe that this was written by John. And therefore, it's not authoritative. They believe that it was inserted by a scribe later on, uh, and it made its way into later manuscripts that were sometimes used in some other translations of the Bible, specifically our English Bible and other language Bibles. Um, now, it may not be original to John, but it does provide us some context, you know, you have to understand that just because something isn't uh, Scripture doesn't mean it's not helpful. There are a lot of ancient sources, ancient documents that are very helpful to us in understanding the Scriptures. And this provides us some context in which to understand the story and the word, the words of the man in verse 7, which we'll get to in just a bit. So for those of you that don't have a Bible with this text in there, let me read for you what you're missing. In these days lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease from which he was afflicted. Now, this is an interesting passage, right? I mean, I mean you, can, you can just kind of see it. You know, supposedly an angel comes in, takes a bath, stirs the water up, and then everybody fights to see who can be in there first to be healed. Um, you, you can, you can kind of see why a lot of scholars didn't think that this was original to the text to begin with. But, but, but although these words should not be considered a part of Holy Scripture, it does seem to indicate that the people had a belief um, that would explain why all of these people who were sick uh, were gathered there because they believed that, um, that an angel would come, stir up the waters, and if they could get in before everybody else, that they would be healed. And it also explains the man's response there in verse 7. And it would also explain why an overzealous scribe would include this in John's gospel. Thinking I'm, in a sense, doing a favor to the readers so that they will have a historical context for understanding why these people gathered there and why the man said what he said. Now, the, um, 
Let's look at verse 6, because this is where it starts to take off. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now, the word translated sick in verse 7 and invalid uh, back in verse 5 both come from the same Greek word, um, meaning, and it can have various meanings. It can mean paralyzed. Uh, it can mean lame, sick. It can even mean extremely weak. And you just have to imagine what life must have been like for this man. 38 years he was like this. Now what I want you to do is imagine you are that man. Imagine that you're this man and Jesus comes to you and he asks you, do you want to be healed? Okay? Now, from where I sit, you, you would think, right? You, you would think that our response would be, do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. Yes, I want to be healed. Heal me. Yeah, I mean, that would tend to be our response. You would think that that would have been the response of this man, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> the, 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 this man, instead of saying, yes, Lord, I would like to be healed, begins to whine and complain that nobody will help him. I, I think blind to the fact that, I mean, how did he get there in the first place? How did he get home every night? I don't know how long he was coming to the pool, but he was there for a long time. And he had been sick for 38 years, and this was a belief that the people had, so no doubt he would have been there many, many times. And he would have been dependent upon people to get him there and to take him home. But he, instead of saying, yes, Lord, I would like to be healed, in some fashion, he simply said, well, no one will help me. No, no one, no one will, will help me. And then, then, then when I want to get down there and I try to get down there, I can't get down there because everybody else rushes ahead of me and they get in there first. So I can't be. He had been unhealthy for so long that he had not only lost hope, but he became a cantankerous old man. This man had this infirmity for 38 years, which is longer than most people had been alive back then. Now, I want you to, to think about his life here. He had to rely on others to get him to and from the pool. As I mentioned, who knows how long that was happening. He had no means to provide for himself and to say, sustain his own life. He was totally dependent upon the kindness and the mercy and the generosity of others. He couldn't get around on his own, so he had a very limited understanding of the world around him. 
No doubt he resigned himself that this would be his lot in life. And that's one of the problems when you endure an affliction, when you endure pain and suffering over a long period of time. Hope becomes hard to cling to. For him, this was normal. This was what his life was like. And he had pretty much given up and therefore resigned himself to say, this, this is just the way it's going to be until I die. I think his response to Jesus indicates that he was somewhat self-absorbed, cranky, and even had a sense of entitlement, which is kind of odd. But that's one thing that I've noticed is People who you would think would not have a sense of entitlement because of a disability or whatever, oftentimes do. And I don't know if that's because people dote on them and care for them so much that they just come to have an expectation that everything they want, you know, will will always come to them on a silver platter. I I don't know. I like what D.A. Carson says here about verse 7. He says, verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as a crotchety grumbling of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. I mean, on the surface, it does seem that way, right? Do you want to be healed? Now, if there's one thing we know about Jesus, he doesn't ask stupid questions. He has a reason for asking the questions that he does. And Jesus, I think, understood what this man didn't. If he was to be healed, his life would be radically changed. And I think some people are fearful of change. I think some people are scared to be healthy. Because they're so used to living in unhealth. They're so used to things being a certain way, they wouldn't know what to do if they were healthy, if they were whole, if they were well. I mean, think about it. If this man was to be healed, if if he was healed, he could no longer lie around and rely on the generosity of others. He'd have to learn to bathe himself, feed himself, clothe himself. He'd have to get a job and provide for himself, provide for his own needs by the sweat of his own brow. He'd have to use his own two legs to get to where he wants to go. He'd have to take responsibility for his life and for his actions and his choices. See, I think when Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? Jesus was saying, are you ready to let go of the past? Are you ready to be made whole, to begin a new life? In short, are you ready to change? And as most of us would assent to, change can be hard, even for those of us who are healthy. So some of you this morning, I think, are like the man in our story. And I don't say that because I know you personally and what's going on in your life. I just know the statistics. I know that we all struggle 
in many ways. We all have issues, things that we're dealing with. Maybe you're, you're dealing with a nagging physical condition that just uh, has sapped your strength. Maybe it's a deep emotional and relational wound that just won't seem to go away. Perhaps your husband or your wife has betrayed you, violated your trust, and hurt you deeply, so that now pain and loneliness and sadness and distrust and loneliness and misery, that's your normal. That's what you're learning to live with. Maybe you feel like a failure or a lost cause. Maybe you too feel trapped and hopeless. I don't know. I know that I experience those feelings from time to time. So let me ask you the question that Jesus asked this man. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? One thing I have learned in in my many years of ministry is you can't help people who don't want to be helped. Sometimes you find yourself caring more about other people than they care about themselves. So are you willing to let go of the hurts that have kept you in bondage? Are you ready for a new normal? And are you ready for change? Make no mistake, your life will change because you can't have an encounter with Jesus and not be changed. And I think that's what Jesus is is getting at here. Um, And I don't know what that would look like for you. I don't know what that change. It might look like this. It, it, It may mean that you need to repent of sinful attitudes and actions. Uh, It may mean you need to take responsibility for your own actions or to trust in the goodness and in the mercy of God in the midst of whatever circumstance you're facing. It may mean you need to to end uh, certain relationships that you have because they're unhealthy. It may mean that you need to remove yourself from certain environments because it's unhealthy. Maybe you need to see a doctor or a counselor. Find a different job. Go to a different school. Pursue a new vocation. Maybe it means you need to forgive those who have hurt you. Or that you need to go to somebody and ask for forgiveness from them. Maybe it means you need to risk being vulnerable again. And to trust the very person whom you have found it difficult to trust. Maybe it simply means you need to stop whining and complaining. One of the interesting things about this story is the fact that this man does not appear to have any faith whatsoever. It's interesting, isn't it? Yet Jesus says to him in verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, this passage is is very problematic for faith healers today, modern-day faith healers. And if you know anything about that movement, you you know why. Because one of the things that they teach is is that, that healing comes as a result of our faith. 
And if you're not healed for some reason, it's because you have a lack of faith in your life. Now, it, it is true that Jesus healed people in conjunction with their faith. There are times when Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. But it's equally true that Jesus healed people who had no faith at all as is the case in our story this morning. And also that Jesus healed people who had a mixture of faith and unbelief. And another thought is that there are many, many people who had faith that Jesus never healed. I mean, think about the crowds that he attracted. Think about the miracles that he did. There wasn't just one or two people in the crowd that had faith. Many people had faith. Many people didn't have faith, but many people had faith. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Here, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, and it's surrounded by the lame, the blind, those who who were sick, had diseases, and Jesus singles out one person and heals him. He doesn't heal everybody. Throughout his ministry, he doesn't heal everybody. Why? Because that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come. His mission wasn't to come to earth to heal everybody of every sickness and disease they've ever had. He came for one reason. He came to save us from our sin. The ultimate healing, if you would. The miracles that Jesus performed were, were, were just not, not designed to wow the crowd. It was designed to point people to God, to reveal his identity and his mission to other people. And they demanded a response from people as well. We can't twist God's arm to do what we would have him to do. When God chooses to heal someone, he does so not because we've managed to work up enough faith so that God can now act, as if he is a slave to us. He heals because he's good, because he's merciful, because he's compassionate, because he cares. It's all centered in him. It's not centered in us. And though Jesus did not heal everyone, this story confirms what we've already learned in the first four chapters. Jesus, as God, has the power over sickness. He can just speak the word and and somebody's healed. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to touch them. He just has to speak it. Jesus is God and Lord over all. This miracle for this man was an act of grace. It was an act of grace that Jesus came to this group of helpless, hopeless people. It was an act of grace that he healed this one particular man out of many. And if you are in Christ this morning, it is because it's an act of grace. It's because God looked down on you and chose to heal you of the worst disease of all, sin. Now this story doesn't conclude with the man's healing. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. Now this 
phrase connects the miracle that just occurred with the verses that follow. So let's keep reading in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. So at some point, the, re- the religious leaders caught up with this man and rebuked him for carrying his bed and thereby breaking um, the Sabbath, violating the law. It's as if they were saying, hey, don't you know what day it is? Don't you know that today's the Sabbath? And, and then you're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath? And yet you're carrying your bed. You're breaking the Sabbath. Oh, gee. This man had an infirmity for 38 years. And rather than rejoicing over the miracle that the man was now made well, they condemned him for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that if he healed somebody on the Sabbath, he would invite persecution. And that's exactly what he got. The Jews cared more about observing their own laws than observing the law of God and helping people. And Jesus knew exactly where to put his finger to get their attention. Now, remember I mentioned previously that the Jews had come up with 613 different laws to help them keep the Ten Commandments. Um, Well, they had 39 rules to help them just keep the Fourth Commandment. 39 laws to help them remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they came up with all these rules as to what constituted work so that they wouldn't do it and thereby break the law of remembering the Sabbath and keeping that day holy. And apparently this included carrying stuff. So, so much for going to the grocery store or carrying a mat. Jesus wanted their attention. He got it. Now, I'm not sure that this man was trying to throw Jesus under the bus or not, but in verse 11, he appears to blame Jesus uh, for his breaking of the Sabbath. You, You see it there in verse 11, he says, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It was the man who healed me. Um, He told me to do it. Go find Jesus. Leave me alone. It's kind of... What I take away from it. And then there in verse 12, they pressed him and said, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And it says clearly, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. How in the world could he have faith? He didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in his place. The man had no clue who Jesus was. But he did know this, whoever he was, he's the one that healed him. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, Jesus' words here suggest that the man's infirmity may have been um, due to some sin in his life. Now, we know that not every disease, every infirmity, every problem that we face is a direct result of our own personal sin, but some is, some are. You can think of a lot of things, a lot of consequences to our sinful actions that bring great pain, not only upon others, but oftentimes upon ourselves. Great suffering. And Jesus warned him here to sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. My goodness, something worse than being laid up for 38 years? Trust me, there's always something worse. You live long enough, you see enough, and you realize there's, there's always something worse that could happen to you. Of course, he could die too, but even that isn't the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you would die, but that you would die in your sin and be forever separated from God for all eternity and have to suffer eternal torment in hell. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. Jesus warns him here not to sin. And Jesus never told this man, your sins are forgiven, like he did the man, the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Remember that story where he was laid, uh, a hole in the roof was dug out, and they lowered him in front of Jesus, and Jesus you know, healed him. And then he said you know, to him, that, that in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. And he did. But he told him his sins were forgiven. And, and I think that this suggests, and I think I can find this elsewhere in Scripture, that, that it's possible for us to be a recipient of God's grace in this life and still miss out on heaven. You know, God causes um, the, the sun to shine on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We are all recipients of God's grace. God could reach down from heaven and heal you of a disease. He could mend a broken bone. He can do all of that, but we could still lose out on salvation. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or is physically healed if he loses his eternal soul? Now, there's no evidence that this man was ever converted and you have to ask the question, why didn't he pursue Jesus like so many other people did after they were healed? I mean, sometimes Jesus had to tell people, don't tell anyone, because they were so eager to tell others what Jesus had done for him. We, we, we don't see him doing this. We, we don't know, but, but this was the attitude of many people who followed Jesus. They followed the Jesus show. You know, they followed him around because they knew that they, they might see another miracle. They might see another demon cast out of somebody or they might um, have another meal in which to eat. We don't know why this man didn't pursue Jesus. And we don't know why he went back to the Jewish leaders. He went back to the Jewish leaders to tell them who it was that healed him. It's, it was Jesus. Jesus. 
And maybe, maybe it was because he was fearful that he might be excommunicated. And so he might have ratted Jesus out, per se. But we do know that in so doing, they turned their attention away from the man and they turned their attention to Jesus. And this really marked the beginning of the formal or official persecution of Jesus during his ministry. Let's look at verse 16, last few verses. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, when the Jewish leaders confronted Jesus, Jesus' response was, was simply that um, his father is still working. Therefore, I am working. I, I like the NIV 84. It says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I, too, am working. Now, you, you begin to hear in Jesus' words what he's saying, but what really stood out to, to these Jewish leaders was the phrase, my father, as opposed to our father. You see, Jesus was claiming a unique relationship to God. He was claiming that he was the unique son of God. And the Jews understood his claim. That's why they sought to kill him. This is the theme of John's gospel. That Jesus was God. They understood him as making himself equal to God. And therefore they sought to kill him. So for the Jews, Jesus was not only guilty of breaking the Sabbath, he was guilty of blasphemy. Jesus, sometimes we're told, um, never claimed to be God. I beg to differ. And I would argue you probably have not read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, because it's everywhere. Jesus claimed to be God because he is God. He can't deny himself. Because Jesus is God, he is Lord over all. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over the Sabbath. He demonstrated his power over sickness and disease by healing the man at the pool. And he demonstrated his authority over the Sabbath, being the Lord of the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath in violation of human man-made rules and regulations. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus is not only able to heal broken bones, but he's able to heal broken hearts and broken relationships. It means that even in the midst of great suffering, God can give us rest. Jesus can give us the rest that we so desperately need. In fact, 
Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is not indifferent to our pain and our suffering. But he does not promise to heal all our sickness, all our diseases. What he does promise is that he will give us rest. He will give us victory. He will give us peace. And one day he will bring us home to be with him where there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. That's what Jesus offers. And so this morning, if you're hurting, if you're sick, if you're weary, I urge you, come to Jesus. And you will find rest for your soul. If you're here this morning and you're well, thank God. Praise God. And use the life and the strength that he has given you to invite others. Not to a a mineral hot spring, but to Jesus who can give them spiritual healing and everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, for your word to us and for this story. And Lord, we just thank you that um, you're a good God. And Lord, that we, no matter what we face in this life, Lord, we can, we can hang our hat on that truth, that you know what we're going through. You identify with pain and suffering. And Lord, sometimes you, you do heal us in this life. But more importantly, Lord, you came to heal us of our sin. And you saved us from having to suffer in an eternity in hell so that we might spend an eternity with you in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would use us all to invite others to come to Jesus where they can find healing and eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.